Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's your boy Johnny Bananas, and I'm going to be covering a brand new season of the Challenge USA on CBS that, of course, I will be completely dominating on my podcast, Death Taxes and Bananas, on the Ringer Reality TV podcast. Head over to that feed and follow us on Spotify so you never miss an episode. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, my hackney diamond, it's Andy (laughs) Greenwald. Chris, it's great to see you. It's great to see Kaya. Happy Labor Day, everyone. It's post-Labor Day now, right? Well, I hope everyone, you know, took a moment to reflect on the labor movement in this country. I did, yeah. Um, And now... As we were just saying before we hit record, the silly season of the summer is over. It's it's back to school time. It's below 80 degrees in Los Angeles. Feels great. Guess the Lines is back. I, I'm about to go fucking apple picking out in this piece. So are I'm you ready. really? <laughs> no, it's, just, it's September, man. I love it. I love it. Today on the podcast, mm-hmm. just to set the little table of contents for everybody. Okay. Carriage fees. Mm-hmm. How do they work? <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit about why... The Disney channels may not have been available to you if you dialed up your your cable subscription on your cable box mm-hmm. and started channel surfing. And then you just got like a weird terse message saying the Disney Corporation is is trying to screw us, so we're not going to carry their channels right now. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about winning time and maybe how-to with John Wilson. What's this maybe? Definitely how-to with John Wilson. And yeah. then, Andy, mm-hmm. a segment that I know that you've been looking forward to for eight weeks. No, seven, because the first two uh, went up at once. The return of the lioness tamer. I can't wait. I, I, by the way, we should start with that once we get through our like news and notes section, front of the book stuff. You want to do lioness up top? Yeah. Okay. I came here today to do two things. <laughs> to chew gum and listen to you talk about enhanced interrogation techniques, and I'm all out of gum. Okay. I'm all out of enhanced interrogation techniques. I actually have gum, but Kaya said that's just really bad form to do that. On God, my... you remember when Jacoby used to, when we first were doing Hollow Prospectus at Grantland? Yeah. And Jacoby used to have a lot of notes on mouth sounds? Yeah. Yeah. Jacoby had a lot of notes on everything. I think it was because I was doing a lot of uh, nicotine gum back then. Yeah. And the reason why I was chewing nicotine gum is that when I moved to Los Angeles... I thought David Jacoby was going to be my smoking buddy. Yeah. That we were all going to smoke in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And I got to the offices of Grantland on like day one. And I was like, hey, brother, want to have a go light a dart outside? And he was like, oh, I quit. He did that to you? Yeah. He was a cold turkey. I quit. Wow. I thought that he was like a New York smoker when he lived in LA. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you cross the middle of the country uh-huh. and then it's okay. You know, like everything east of the Mississippi is like Vegas for your lungs. That's right. That's, That's not right. the case? No. But then you then you then you power quit yourself. Uh no, I mean I it depends on how you describe quit. You <laughs> oh know? Uh it's no like boy. I is nicotine still a part of my life? Yes. In yeah, many you still have a forms, relationship but with not nicotine. with cigarettes, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I most of Jacoby's notes, however, were about how we shouldn't banter at the top of a podcast. How are you doing? <laughs> 
Wow. How are you doing? I feel great. Yeah? I feel really good to be here. I, you, you made a reference to Hackney Diamonds. The new album from the Rolling Stones. Here's my thing about this. I'm thrilled they're making a new record. Fantastic. Great for those, those boys. Yeah. It did say in the, the metadata that this is their first album of original material since 2005's A Bigger Bang, which I believe had a, a strident anti-Bush doctrine screed, <laughs> which I'm sure has aged mwah, better than Keith Richards' lungs. But I was going to say, I don't want to tell those guys how to do their job. They're the best rock band ever. And they actually were that when we were born. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. But if I you know, had one eye on the mortality clock, I wouldn't let two decades elapse between records. I'd put something on wax. I think those guys were busy, you know? Yeah. I think those guys were, they were touring and right. making billions of dollars while doing it. Right. And they're probably like... I imagine if you're in your late 60s, 70s, I know that they're in their 80s yeah. now, but let's say like you know, 10 years ago. Right. And uh, Keith Richards is like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this. UK garage. Oh, eh. Did you say that he's trapped in a UK garage? No, he, or was, he's listening he was like, to how about we interpolate a bit of UK garage? Like a little bit of like breakbeat culture into the Rolling Stones. And then by the time I, they get to that, yeah. it's like, oh, that moment has passed. Do you think someone played Keith Richards, the Artful Dodger record, and was like, Keith, mate, it's time, isn't it? Mad, yeah. mad for it. Uh, I don't gonna, think so. We I'm, have a British show coming up that we're going to watch a little bit of, The Gold, also on Paramount Plus, along with The Lioness. The Lioness? Yeah. No, I... I wonder if I should start calling it The Lioness. I like that. Yeah. Maybe we should start calling shows just whatever we want. I think it's, um, that was what, what's his name? That was the Matt Reeves thing where it's just like, you, you don't take Batman seriously enough. Yeah. He's the Batman. He's the Batman. Now. Andy, do you have a cable subscription? I don't. Okay. I do. I know. Uh, and this weekend was the opening weekend of college football. Mm -hmm. I had not really been paying attention to the entertainment trades because I knew we had this long weekend. I knew I, I had plenty of time to catch up. You just up. wanted to unplug? Yeah, a little bit. And so I mm. uh, flipped around, mm -hmm. I think on Friday, Saturday. Were you going to put on the U.S. Open maybe? No, I was going to watch a little college football. And I was able to do that, but only on the Fox network. Hmm. And it's because I subscribe to a, or I'm a customer of a cable company that mm -hmm. is in conflict with Disney. This is actually... This is hitting home for me. Wow. So for people who don't know, let's tell them a little bit about the situation. Essentially every year or whenever these contracts come up, mm -hmm. the cable companies, your your Spectrums, your whatevers. Uh, Xfinity. Xfinities, yeah. They negotiate with content distributors, the studios essentially, right? On carriage fees. On like what it's going to cost to for them to carry... Per Per customer, what are they going to... I mean, that's how it passes on to the customer. Yes. And when I look at my cable bill, mm -hmm. and it is incredibly high, I see, like, you're being charged this for this package and this for this package of things. And are, some of it is like, oh, movies and whatever. Are you paperless or do you still get, like, a sheaf of papers? No, like I, a, I like... I like a, I have file cabinets of all my bills. That's great. Yeah. That's um, useful. You're going you're gonna to need those. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, you know, my mom does do that. Yeah. And it's just like, what are we doing here with life? I think my parents do it too, but it's hard to see underneath the the boxes of Sarah Lee products <laughs> that are on the counter. But I think that they act as a paperweight, an effective yeah, paperweight. Yeah, right. Um, so essentially what happened was Disney, which owns ESPN, which, which owns ABC, uh, tried to ask for something. I don't remember what the exact fee, mm. fee, fee upcharge was, but I think it was like a maybe a dollar fifty more per customer or whatever they were doing. And Charter put its foot down. Charter uh, is this major cable company said, we're not gonna, we're not paying more for this. Or if you want us to pay mm -hmm. more for this, we would like for our customers to have access to your 
OTT product. So that would be like ESPN Plus, mm-hmm. uh, Hulu, uh, Disney Plus. Yes. The, the, the sort of products that are, according to Bob Iger himself, the future of Disney in yes. terms of their television offerings. We have arrived at, I, you know, I, Matt Bellany wrote about this. There's a bunch of stuff from Benjamin Mullen in the New York Times that's very illuminating about all of this. The reason why I wanted to ask you about this stuff is that we are in day 100 plus. 29, of, I think, something like that. Well, for the, but for the writer's strike, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, we're, we're deep into this strike. Mm-hmm. We're entering another season, another queue of uncertain, like, content mm-hmm. offerings. And then on the flip side of this, we have this moment where, on the precipice of college football season and with NFL starting on Thursday and ESPN and ABC being like a major NFL offering, Mm -hmm. NFL uh, distributor, a major cable network is just like, we can't do this anymore. Not unless you want to offer us a backdoor. These backdoors are pretty common. Like I think uh, for a long time, I'm not sure if they still offer it, but if you subscribe to HBO through your cable company, you get HBO Max for free there are like you there often when you see these things it's like log in through your cable provider right. so there are traditionally ways to have these back doors into the OTT products but it's just wild to me that we are seemingly arriving at this like crossroads where a bunch of these things are kind of falling apart at once i think it's fascinating and it's you you've you've zeroed in on the part of it that actually is fascinating i think even to the layman which is charter saying you have been saying the quiet part loud for so long now that we need to talk about this in public. And the quiet part is the cable bundle is dead. Yeah. And that is not part of our future. That is not part of our great nation's future. And we are we are systematically dismantling our commitment to those consumers and to that industry. And we are putting our prime resources towards streaming. Now, you pointed out that like, you could subscribe. If you were paid for HBO through your cable plan, you could get HBO Go or HBO Now or yeah. HBO Max or all these now defunct services. Yeah. That was primarily during an era when that was, your, that was your easiest ability to watch the content you subscribe to on demand or on the go yeah. on your devices. I'm that often on the go. And, and that's often when I want to watch HBO. HBO Go in some ways suited my lifestyle. It best. did. Yeah. Just like for a long time, I was like, Chris, a healthy alternative in the morning would be yogurt. And you were like, I can't, how could I do that on the go? And then yeah. I pointed out in the kid's aisle, the Gogurt product. <laughs> and you're like, this appeals to me. Yeah. This is my sensibility. But it's tough because I already have my phone in my hand watching yeah. HBO Go. But that's the beauty of the Gogurt product. No sponsors, but you can just squeeze the tube into your mouth while going. Going in any whatever capacity you need to <laughs> yeah. go. Um, so they are basically saying to Disney, you are taking these things away from us and you are forcing us into some pretty challenging existential waters here because you've publicly said that you are making programs for people who pay for the Disney Plus product or play for the ESPN Plus product or whatever. So, okay, let's talk about it and let's hash this out in person and person in public and say, how are we both going to survive this? This is, it's funny, Bob Iger took the time in Sun Valley to be like, the writers are being a little bit inconvenient. Uh This seems to be a lot more inconvenient, I would say, in terms of the company's bottom line. Because in the midst of all of this tumult, the carriage fees for ESPN are still money printed for them. Yes, That's still a huge bulwark of their plan. And if you listen to Matt Bellany on the town, he even recently was talking about how one of the things, Disney is in rough waters right now, but they do still have some revenue streams, Mm -hmm. like cable, like, apologies for the rough waters comment, but cruise ships, like amusement parks. You take one of those planks away, plus original content being made, then you're really talking trouble. The big picture about all this that I find really interesting brings me back to 
the writer's strike and the current labor unrest in Hollywood. This was phrased to me really well the other day, and I think this is a, probably a good way to understand where things stand coming out of Labor Day, which is the studios did their big public leak of their offer, which they felt, and of course they would feel this way, was quite reasonable and made significant concessions monetarily in terms of uh, potential, ra- basically raises for the writers. This was met with a lot of derision, Uh not just because of the leaking of it, but because it was not nearly enough. And one thing that the AMPTP does not seem to understand, and hopefully they will learn soon learn to understand or come to understand, is that this disagreement has gone past being financial. It is philosophical. Yeah. We are not talking about deserving a 10% pay bump versus a 5% pay bump. Writers are talking about can you prove your that you value writing as a profession so that it can be a profession in this town? I think actors feel the same way. Um, that's a very, very different argument. Now, I think that that actually, understanding that would be a path towards some sort of resolution. But once again, we have these um, financially driven, shareholder driven, uh, old school capitalist whales like Bob Iger trying to fix a philosophical problem with financials. Yes. And that is ugly, but it's also very indicative of where we are at this particular moment. Yeah, I just think that the... Look, I mean, as Matt pointed out, as Bellany pointed out in his What I'm Hearing column, his newsletter that he sends out through Puck, he was like, this is sort of a tradition unlike any other where Mm -hmm. a a cable company and, you know, uh, whether it's, um, you know, Dodgers games in LA, like it it does seem like seasonal that it gets into a staring contest about, oh, hey, you know, we're going to pull. Yeah, this isn't new. We're going to drop this. Mm -hmm. This has happened before. And often what happens is around sports and people demand essentially to get the NFL and there's some sort of there's some sort of uh compromises made. I find that the whole idea of of offering people who subscribe to a cable company this free membership essentially to or mm-hmm. some some tranche of uh a studios OTT offerings to be fascinating. On one hand, I'm sure it helps at times to kind of inflate eyeballs and minutes spent and you know all these other things but you do wonder whether or not if espn is eventually going to turn into espn plus or if Mm -hmm. espn plus is going to be a a huge uh hub for most of their stuff like whether or not the fact that all those people who are watching it via say a charter or spectrum are not paying for it is actually like, that's a Wall Street thing where they might be like, yeah, I know you say all these people are yes. spending this amount of time watching the featured group of the US Open or whatever it is that you've got or the featured group of the Masters, but they're not paying to watch that. This is like what Skarsgård did with India in the last season of Succession. That's right. Um, there are two Indias. There are moments, I mean, there are, yeah, again, we are not, um, we are not fiduciaries, but um, yeah, I'm not even, but, I, but, I didn't the, even bring this up to be like, let's break down the numbers as much as between a bunch of blockbusters seemingly moving to 2024, Disney moving most of its Marvel content to 2024 after, uh, Loki, uh, the strikes, mm-hmm. the strikes, as you said, becoming post-financial and now philosophical where you see people being like talking about some of the ideas and being like, I will strike on this forever, you yeah. know? And, and now you've got like this sort of collapse of the of a, this oncoming collapse of cable we're in this incredibly tempestuous and, time and it's fraught because this is happening this shift to philosophical um debate let's say is happening concurrently at a time when 
money is no longer theoretical, right? I mean, this has been underscoring a lot of the conversation over the last year and a half, but at a time when interest rates were what they were mm -hmm. and you could borrow against whatever, you could prop up your bottom line yeah. with just shareholder growth. You didn't have to say how much they were paying or in which of the two Indias they lived in. I you bought just had... so many vape stores. Just Did you? Money was cheap. That's yeah. incredible yeah. by you. Um, yeah. are now they... the bill is coming due. Are they still operating as vape stores or are you considering pivoting? <laughs> That's the thing. I might just start showing ESPN there. <laughs> Actually, oh, you know, in the same way that like during a hot day, cities open like cooling centers, yeah. <laughs> you could go through Los Angeles and be like, watch the Clemson game yeah. here at this abandoned vape store. Yeah. And if you, if you, if you want to suck down some strawberry banana <laughs> smoke vapes, like go for it. That's your genius. Um, yeah, I mean, this this is a that's a little tough because bottom line does matter. And you can't just write checks that your company's ass can't cash anymore. You have to actually be able to cash them. So I don't know. I, I, I wonder if Bob Iger wakes up every day being like, why did I come back to this? But at the same time, then he looks around and he's on the yacht that's attached to his larger yacht. And he's probably like, this is fine. I have to Im imagine that. I don't want to put it as simply as like, he likes being powerful and he likes being loved, but he's really only one of those things right now. Yeah. So... I think that when he exited, it was just like this guy brought us the mm -hmm. the sort of avalanche of Marvel and Star Wars that all dorks inside of adults wanted. And he also has just overseen this pretty much uninterrupted run of of growth and public adoration for Disney. And then he goes away and it gets bad. And now he comes back and he's like, It'll, it, it, I fixed X, Y, and Z. And this is going to be great. And we're mm -hmm. back in theaters and we have Disney Plus and I'm going to oversee, you know, Indiana Jones is coming back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> we're building off that Eternals momentum. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it just seems like, I wonder if that guy, when's the last time that guy's had like a good day at work? It's He's interesting as a case study because as far as I know, he's the only example we have in American life of someone just clinging to power too long. Yeah. I mean, most people are just like, it's it's like, why would I make Hackney Diamonds when I could just... When I could just coast off, you know? Yeah. Like, what more do I have to accomplish as, um, you know, the leader of my party in the Senate? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, it, it's hard to imagine. But yeah, it's, but it's also, look, the bill always comes due for this stuff. And, you know, when Iger left, he was like, look at all the things I acquired at a time when it seemed like expansion and acquisition was the future. And, and they were positioning themselves to have the biggest larder for the upcoming content wars. Everybody was thrilled. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting digging into it. And now the only thing that I hear about, like, for example, the, the Fox acquisition is what a genius Rupert Murdoch was to sell and what a dummy Iger was to let Universal bid the price up. So it became prohibitively expensive, but he had to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, now, this is always, you know, the, the takes of the moment are always going to shift, but he did have a strange opportunity, perhaps a unique opportunity to just be like, look what I did. Now you clean it up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's it's very, very, very messy. And I guess probably the best way to just put a button on the conversation is for as much as we've talked about the strike and as much as the strike has dominated some of the coverage of entertainment, unless you are a huge late night TV fan or something, you still haven't really felt the impact of it. That is going to begin this week when there's no fall TV season, sure. right? Yeah. Um, if you are a cable subscriber and suddenly you can't watch sports this weekend, the strike it's is literally not the only reason I have cable is to watch sports. Yeah. Like without any like, oh, 
my internet's down or something like that. Ironically, my internet comes through my cable company. So it's well, like... <laughs> there you go. Damned if you do. So do you have... You have... What do you... If you don't mind me asking. Wow, okay. Do you use live YouTube, on... YouTube TV? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm still a fool with DirecTV. Oh, okay. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Didn't you have some, some issues? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But okay. I'm too lazy to unbundle I'm in myself. too deep. If I had to guess, there's three people in the studio right now. It's you and me. Mm-hmm. And it's Kaya McMullen, our mm-hmm. producer. I bet Kaya's a cord cutter. Hardcore, right? Uh, yeah, I haven't had cable since I left my parents' house. I, I think, I don't want to put Kaya on the spot, but I think I heard she recently got some new passwords for herself <laughs> on, on some of her streaming services. You know, what, you know what I do do is use, I do have my own Netflix account now. Thank you very Congrats, much. Yeah. Thank you. I'm a big girl now. Mm-hmm. Um, I use my dad's direct TV login on the occasion that like I do. Like you want to watch the Oscars. Yes, when I want to watch the Oscars or when I want to watch like a Stray Warriors game. Okay. Stray Warriors game? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm from the Bay No, I know, but we learned each other. Like, I just never heard you been like, hey, did you see that Warriors game last night? Well, I mean, I don't have a lot to add when I watch NBA games. No, but this is how people like, the, you know, like this is how we become friends is just by saying like, hey, did you see the, <laughs> see the game last night? This is the biggest Christmas smile. We've been working with Kaya for like three and a half years. Do the years thing, was it, what were you talking about yeah. a couple days ago where you were like, I love like when some, what was the thing where it's like, hey, did you see the Knicks? And your friend's like, what are you going to do with this team? Oh, no, it's my, it's my, my, my great friend, John Carlo, who's a brilliant composer, composer <laughs> of my show and, and, and worked on many other things, 30 Rock, et cetera. He, um, He's a lifelong New Yorker, does not really care about sports, and wears a beaten up Knicks hat. It's his favorite hat. And he wears it out in public. And people will be like, what do you think of the game last night? And he goes, what are you going to do? And that's always <laughs> accurate, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Can you believe how good these guys are or how bad these guys are? Yeah. It all fits He's on like, what are you going to do? This, or, he, or he just goes, this team. Yeah. And it gets, and the other person's like, I know. And it yeah, could yeah. be good or it could be bad. Yeah. No problem. Okay, it is a great equalizer. Yeah, sports. You should do that more often. I think that would that would, that would be like an interesting an interesting curveball from Kaya. If if she just showed up in a Draymond Green jersey, <laughs> that would be a surprise. Kaya's more of a Jordan Poole guy. Wow, it, feel, yeah. it feels like generationally he's more of a like I don't have to, my own password to Netflix. I he know, definitely. I doesn't. know enough about sports to say I'm not a Jordan Poole guy. <laughs> yeah, that's Thank that's you. that's Joe House now, right? Yeah, that's Joe House's problem. Yeah, it's his cross to bear. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. All right, do you want to talk about Lioness first? I really want... I mean, when you say talk about, I really want to hear you talk about it. I am not... Here's how I've prepared this. Before, can I just put a pre-apology? Because I feel like last week, there's a, there's a couple things you really wanted to do. Like, you're, you're an easygoing guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the nicotine in you, you're fine. <laughs> you're fine for, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. Um, <laughs> you last re- longer than that. You re- I don't know. You really wanted to talk about Ferrari. The trailer for Ferrari, yeah. And I couldn't get there with you, and I feel bad about that. That's okay. I, just, I think that we all have... We, it's okay to have different tastes. And I often... 
I think on our podcast, because you and I were just best buds, you know, mm-hmm. like we try to be there for each other. Yeah. If one of us is not watching a show, mm-hmm. we're just probably not going to talk about it very much. Not too much. As, as drops of God. It's not like you don't do your thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I do my thing. You mean when we're not recording? This is just going to be a little bit of an experiment to see how interesting of a conversation we can have about a show you haven't watched, okay? And what I've done yeah. for everybody mm-hmm. is I have prepared a quick recap of the season you missed. Oh, wow. Um, some of these are just notes to myself, so they might not be like, I'm not trying to say like this is a total synopsis. If you have not seen Lioness, I would stop listening and okay. just know that as of right now, Lioness is probably in my top 10 shows of the year. I just want to clarify for people if they haven't clicked off yet. Um, should they stop listening forever? To no, this they should come back come to back? this episode because we'll oh. be talking about winning time and how to as well. Um, I realize I should have gotten in front of this with the holiday weekend looming. If I had known you were going to do like a deep investigative dive on the season, I was hoping you could do it in the style of Seymour Hirsch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... Like reporting. You mean have one anonymous source who tells me everything I want to know? All the bad things that happen, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't have that. Do you think it would be useful for you to know what happened on this season? Is that not what you're going to be covering? No, I have that. And then I also have some observations. I really want to know, genuinely and sincerely, as your friend and as someone who's just devoted to content, I want to know why you love the show so much. Okay, I, I'll tell I, you. I, I'm I'll just exci- skip to that. No, no, to do the thing. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not like I have like a stand-up routine based on this. I was, just, I was just give you, I was going to give you the highlights of yeah, what happened. It's and, eight- and are you going to include the highlights on the, the you know, the, the field of combat and the home front? Yeah, well, that's what, that's one of the things that makes this show pretty interesting. The conflict is, exists in both The war spaces. at home. Wow. Um, I've never seen that done in a okay, show. Okay, so spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Cue the Lion King music. for Lioness, Special Ops Golden Lioness, but I can pretty much tell you that they wanted to call this show Lioness. I think that they put the Special Ops there because... To build a franchise. Because it seems like they might want to build another franchise. Chris, did you know that um, recently in in, in New York City, I I took my my daughters to see The Lion King on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And one thing that show, this is relevant, really brings up is that, you you know who does the hunting in a pride? The Lioness. Did you know that from the show? No, I don't. They don't really even get into too much why they're calling it the Lioness Program. Uh, but it's really we, about people. But we've we've more, solved we've more solved than lions. That. Yeah, we know why. Um, so Andy, you watched the first episode. I did. So you know about the setup. You know about mm-hmm. Cruz Manuelos, who's our our sort of uh, not really our protagonist because that's Joe played by Zoe Saldana, but like the this this sort of person left behind by the world. It's kind of like marginalized by her relationships in life, by by her family life, mm-hmm. by her access to opportunities in the world. And the, she finds her calling when she crashes through the glass door of a Marine recruiting station on the run from an abusive partner. Mm-hmm. And the Marine steps in between them in this conflict and then is like, seems like you want to be a Marine. And she does. And she becomes a Marine and she excels at it. That's how you came to be the owner of a chain of vape stores. <laughs> <laughs> you just crashed into the wrong Hesher's establishment. That's right. It seems and, like you'd uh, like to own a vape store. So I think a lot of people anecdotally were turned off by the second episode, which you did not see. No, I was turned off by the second episode. Okay, so where she is uh, put through advanced interrogation techniques to see how much she could withstand where she ever captured yeah. like her predecessor was. Uh, her predecessor, who 
is unceremoniously executed with a drone strike ordered by her own boss because it's essentially is like a mercy killing, but it's mm-hmm. also to clear the sort of slate of like any evidence of the Linus program existing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's helpful to sort of, you know, if you can get past this second episode, which I, I admit is tough to take, you know, it's, it's, it reminded me a lot of the infamous fourth episode of Kingstown, um, which I think I've mentioned to you, which is about like Jeremy Renner essentially orchestrating the murder of a meth dealer. Taylor uh, Sheridan is just... By pitting multiple prison gangs on this guy. He's just built different. Yeah, it really is crazy when you have to say these things out loud to people. <laughs> As the season goes on, though, essentially you get the idea of like who Cruz's target is going to be, who is this uh, financier for terrorist organizations. And uh, he is operating as an uh, oil dealer. Like he basically like moves uh, black market oil essentially to Russia and China. But mm-hmm. like his other job is is acting as a bank for uh, a lot of terrorist organizations. Seems like he doesn't need another job. No, I mean, you'd think, mm-hmm. you know, but like... It's tough out there. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> wake up, wake up and grind, right? If he's got one hand on HBO Go and the other hand on the Go-Gurt, you know? That's right. Um... And so as the season progresses, the way that Cruz sort of gets close or tr- attempts to get close to this financier is through his daughter, uh, Alia, who is getting married in s- some future episode. And so she is like kind of on her her bachelorette stag do run where she's going to the Hamptons and she's going to New York City and she's she's partying because she's going to get married in a, in a couple of weeks to this uh, guy who is essentially her father, maybe in the making. He's a financier, not not for terrorist organizations, but is, is working in investments, but seems to have a lot of access to security information. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as the season are goes we, on... Are we invested in this couple? Uh, like, are we like, let's hope these crazy kids make it? Well, funny you should mention that mm. because what starts out as obviously a professional job for Cruz becomes more complicated when her oh, and Alia consummate their relationship. Oh. Yeah. Um, and they start to fall in love. So, whoa, Cruz's main issue here is that like she's not trained for matters of the heart, right? She, she doesn't she doesn't know like how to how to deal with her feelings for this woman when she's also trying to get close enough to her father to execute him. Essentially, there's a whole other subplot going on yeah. uh, about uh, some incursions into the homeland, uh, mm. into the United States, by some terrorist organizations, and and there's a couple of really dynamic set pieces throughout the season. One in uh, pretty much ripped right from the Sicario uh, highway traffic jam shootout. It's not plagiarism if you wrote the if first one. If you version. wrote the first one. And then there's also, I mentioned uh, a a kill team in a safe house in San Antonio a couple weeks ago. You seemed pretty pretty interested in that. I am. I mean, <laughs> again, it's cool when like you know what you're, like calling yourself a kill team. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's QRF. It's a it's a quick response force, I think. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. That uh, could be anything. So while all this is happening, we get to know a little bit more about the Zoe Saldana character, Joe, and her relationship with her husband, Neil. They're in a little bit of an open relationship because they were having problems with their marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's a kind of absentee mom because she's constantly being called away to these far-flung places to oversee some pretty mm-hmm. gnarly shit. So Neil's really... Uh, watching the shop, but not watching it well enough because at some point during the season, their teenage daughter uh, not only gets in a massive car accident, but it's found out that she's pregnant when that happens. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on with that. But it's more functions as a reason why Joe is like distracted and also wants to stop doing Mm -hmm. this and get a desk job. 
Anyway, what you really need to know is that everything kind of builds and builds and builds. We learn more about Nicole Kidman's Caitlin character, who's mm-hmm. Zoe Saldana's boss. Do we learn where she's from in order to be speaking that way? I really don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't know what's up with the eyebrows. I don't know what's up with the accent. I'm going to talk a little bit about the appearances of certain actors in this show. Okay. Um, essentially, it all culminates with a lovely-looking wedding in Mallorca. Oh, they do get married. Yes, and uh-huh. uh, and and spoiler of all spoilers, mm. Cruz kills the shit out of both Alia's uh, husband-to-be and her father. Like, wow. really, really, really does a number on them. This and, is in the finale? And escapes, yes. And when she escapes, and she Escapes gets, from Lioness 2 or escapes from... Well, she gets back on the boat and she essentially says to Joe, look what you made me into. Like, look what you've mm-hmm. done to me. And she's like, you're a fucking liar. And all I did today was change the price of oil. Like the whole idea is essentially this is like a completely hollow exercise and that like has nothing to do with like protecting people or patriotism. There was this in response to how to blow up a pipeline? Do you think they exist in the same? (laughs) I don't think so. So this kind of leads me to my first point about what makes this show pretty interesting to me. Was the kill team invited to the wedding? Uh, in a sense, they were on a yacht off the coast. They were around. Wearing flippers and holding uh, silenced machine guns. They were ready. Yeah, they they extracted. Uh, oh, oh, okay. All right, sorry, please. So um, I would say that one of the most interesting things about this show is that on surface, you could probably say, oh, what a fucking piece of imperialistic, jingoistic like nonsense and propaganda. I think it actually is not anti-war, which mm-hmm. is what you might respond to or what someone might respond to in it. It doesn't, it certainly romanticizes and for lack of a better term, lionizes, uh, especially the special operations part of the military. Mm-hmm. I think it has a pretty low opinion of American foreign policy and American government. And that is actually something that's pretty consistent with if you wind up in YouTube rabbit holes watching like Navy SEALs talk on podcasts. Yeah. They're very much like what we do is very special and we're like new gladiators, but like the government itself is a bunch of fucking nimrods. Yeah. yeah. It's it's don't hate the players, hate the game. Exactly. So that gets articulated through the show pretty interestingly. And I think that's the politics of Sicaria too. Oh yeah. I mean, I I love that movie. I'm not anti Taylor Sheridan's kill team shenanigans. Yeah. Um the thing that you really so I I mean because of the military stuff and the the way that they handle it and the kind of attitude they have about it, you know, John Hillcoat directed like four four mm-hmm. of this eight episodes. Like this thing looks great, and the action set pieces are actually, I'd put them up against a lot of uh, like seventy five percent of the stuff you might see in movies these days in terms of like you you saw that first episode, mm-hmm. the, it looked the amazing. opening strike. Like it's it's pretty incredible stuff. There is something to the way that Taylor does these shows that I want to try and unpack with you, even though I know you are not like a subscriber to his brand. I'm a charter subscriber, unfortunately. I've lost all access to, not charter in the sense of first, but like that's my case. (laughs) Taylor Sheridan is not Aristotle. Right. Um, For as much action as there is in his shows, I do not think that the action defines the characters. Like, you know, the idea that action is character or character Mm -hmm. is action or whatever it is. It's like, his characters are constantly telling you who they are, what they believe in, and what they are going to do. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, he is like almost, he is like a pure TV writer. Like he, he really does understand the econ- storytelling economy of, of television, where he is not letting you kind of wonder, what's this person in it for? Right. Why is this person doing this? They're like, they walk into a room and they fucking say what they're doing and why they're doing it. 
that can be a little reductive and maybe it doesn't allow much for the imagination of the audience, but it certainly works when you are trying to move through scenes quickly. Mm-hmm. And specifically the way that he has constructed a lot of these series where they're essentially like miniseries. You know, Kingstown, I think, is the only one that I would say seems to be operating, and Yellowstone, obviously, where you're like, oh yeah, this could go on for as long, I guess, as you wanted it to. Like, he he really does like drive your attention. He really grabs your attention over the course of these sort of like, I don't know, like six, seven to eight episode series. I mean, I think 1883 was the best example mm-hmm. of this where it was like, oh, like anything can happen in this. It's really like all, all bets are off when it comes to what I'm used to in these kinds of shit. And, and we've stories. heard enough anecdotes to suggest that there really might be some truth to the fact that the powers that be at Paramount were as in the dark as anyone else about the future of, of 1883. They were yeah. like, we have it blocked out. You'll be shooting season two here. And he was like, did you not read the scripts? Yeah, right. Like right. The, the conventional thinking, people expect something more conventional. Yes. And I will be interested to see, they did not end Lioness in any way where it would be like, you know, they ended Lioness in a way where it could very easily be a second season mm-hmm. of this specific story. Or because they have called it Special Ops Lioness, there could be another story set in this world, perhaps tangentially like related to it. Maybe mm-hmm. some of the characters that we see a lot in the Situation Room. I mentioned Morgan Freeman. I mentioned Michael Kelly and Bruce McGill and Jennifer Ellie and like all these people who are kind of in the more the Washington D.C. side of this mm-hmm. world. I I could definitely see that being a thing if they wanted to do more of it. And if Zoe Saldana was like, that was the season that I wanted to do. The other big thing to know about Taylor Sheridan and why I think his shows work really well is he is a fucking melodrama merchant. Yes. Like, there is a Grey's Anatomy skeleton underneath all this muscle and masculine I totally agree with this. The stuff in Joe's family life, you're watching and you're like, right, they're going to gesture to like the kids being annoyed that she's always gone but that's going to be way mm-hmm. in the background. And in the middle of the season, he essentially like flips the the kind of foreground background of the series itself. And like her family life is essentially like two episodes, full episodes, so a quarter of the season. Mm-hmm. And it winds up becoming, while ridiculous, like in some ways, pretty engaging because you're like, I'm way more interested in this person's home life now because the show is. The show isn't just saying like, Oh yeah, don't worry, man. Joe and her marriage and her kids, like, but really what we want to do is have more extraction scenes and more like fighting going on. They actually do completely like turn the axis of the show around. I do think it's fascinating. I think it's one of the keys to Taylor Sheridan's enormous popularity and also why he may just be one of one, not just his ability to crank out endless scripts that he seems to possess, but his like you can't really hide who you are, your sensibilities in TV, and especially when you're making this much TV. And he has such a, frankly, bizarre combination of um, CBS and cinema. Mm -hmm. You know, I I can't think of anyone else like that. Because when we talk about the ways he's pushing the genre forward, I mean, some of them are in terms of clearly budgets or the extremity of what he wants to do in some of these shows to some of his characters and the unpredictability of it. 1883 being the prime example, and I'm sorry that we're spoiling it for people, but there will not be an 1884, as guaranteed by the end of 1883. Um, But at the same time, when I watch the shows, I find it hard to settle in 
because some of it feels like something that was on TV 25 years ago. Yeah. There's something when structural to it. When you read the, it. the plot descriptions yeah. of some of his shows, they are not that different than reading a plot description of like Brothers and Sisters or Once and Again or some of that like early yeah. 2000s hour-long network drama about a family who has a company and also a bunch of different love the, interests. There are numerous kettles to draw friction from, yeah. right? You need to have as many as possible. Um, usually when someone comes from movies and says, I'm an auteur, I'm going to carve out the space for myself, they don't just naturally gravitate towards that kind of storytelling, yeah. which also makes it why, makes that helps understand why CBS or Paramount are so heavily invested in him because he makes their shows. He just makes them through his own particular lens. Um, I, I still think, like when you describe some of the, the things that make you, that make Linus compelling to you, and the people that show up in it, I am interested. Yeah. Because as I said, I like Sicario. I think, it, to me, I still am not comfortable with that collision of those two sensibilities. Like, everything that you're describing in Lioness, to me, in a vacuum, you're would, work, would yeah. work better as a movie because you wouldn't have to backfill and frontfill and sidefill all of the stuff where the people walk into rooms and say, actually, I'm a trauma surgeon. Right. You could just be like, this is a fucked up slice of a moment and walk away from it, which is what Sicario does best, I think. So I, that's the part where it starts to lose me. But frankly, that makes my argument irrelevant because that's where it gains millions of Americans. Yeah. Because I, they're watching it on their stories box. I also think that it, it just appeals to more than just guys who listen to special ops podcasts on YouTube. You know, it winds up making it a little bit more three-dimensional, even yes. if those dimensions still feel like particularly like soapy sometimes. Like there, there, there is a lot more to it than just like this person, her training, her spy story, and then the military action around it. I do th also, I appreciate what you're saying, though, because I do think it's really, it's not just pointless. I think it's actively lazy to be reductive about one guy's politics or the, the politics of a show because he doesn't fit neatly into any box. No, and I don't, I don't think. think actually he's, I think he obviously has some opinions about like the way the world works and and clearly has a really like masculine pretty like maybe outdated masculine way of like writing dialogue or what people say to one another. And then funnily enough, like often will make a woman the, the lead of his show. And in this case, the three main characters played by Zoe Saldana, Nicole Kidman and, and Leila Dio Oliveros are all, you know, it's like that, that they're essentially like the three like most on-screen people here. But also I think the coverage of this is the coverage of him and his shows is is outdated as some of our political coverage is too, because it does strike me from the shows of his that I've seen and the interviews that I've read that he his main takeaway, and you were alluding to this, is that the way the systems work in this country are fundamentally broken mm -hmm. and have been corrupted. Um, and there have been betrayals um, to Americans and to the to the America's contract with the larger world. What's kind of interesting about this moment is I think that people from all binary spectrums of political thought feel that way. Yeah. It's what do you do about it? Well, there's a... And, and what are our responsibilities towards that? So there's a really interesting moment on this show that I think some people might... You, you, could, you could show this in a focus group, and I think the focus group would be split. Um, there's a moment where Cruz is starting to doubt whether she can do this anymore. Like, she's just like, I think that, like, my heart is in play here. I'm not trained to be a liar. Um, I'm trained to be a soldier. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trained to be, pretend to be somebody that I'm not. 
And uh, she's like, I think that I need to pull out. Like, I can't do this anymore. This is once they've become romantic. And on their way to Spain to go to, like, the first staging area before they go to this wedding, um, the character, the Joe character, makes Cruz watch footage of terrorist incidents that have been linked to the target, the guy who's financing these incidents. She's like, I'm going to make you watch hours of footage of terrorist incidents that we have. And you could watch that and be like, that's propaganda. Like that's, that's this person being like what we're doing, which is essentially like paramilitary, like non-sanctioned assassinations is justified by, you know, the, the, these, these acts, these terrible acts. But I kind of watched it and, and saw somebody being indoctrinated into a cult. Mm-hmm. And I think that when the show ends, when the season ends, she has broken that spell and is like, that was a fucking lie. Like, and she even says, like, all you did was kill an old man and guarantee that Alia's eventual kids will grow up hating us because they'll hear about what happened to their grandfather. Mm-hmm. You know, and is it told in a bare knuckled way? Yeah, but I think it's a lot more nuanced than just like America always has the right answer to these things. Well, also we're existing in a world where the entertainment options of how we talk about America or American power are either stories like this or literally Captain America. Yeah. Well, they have to be like viewed through the lens of like allegory or fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so, I mean, again, this is easy for me to say as someone who chose not to watch the and show. somebody wrote like a graduate level thesis on, on the Sokovia Accords. I did. Thank you. I feel like my work is often repurposed yeah. but rarely cited. Yeah. Um, and I know that on Twitter you like to go around and just be like I was, I've been writing about the Sokovia Accords for quite some time and I would appreciate you, you're, you know, you, you seeing me. Do you mean X? <laughs> I do that on X. Um, I'll wrap it up just by saying that there are parts of this of Taylor Sheridan's work where I think it suffers for him not having maybe the same level of accountability that other television makers have where they're like, I have to, I have to satisfy like Mm -hmm. my corporate overlords or, you know, there's other creative partners who are telling me that like, they think it should go one way or another. Uh, Much has been made of Taylor Sheridan's comments on writing staffs. um, Mm -hmm. You know, and we've talked about that before. Uh, there is one thing that I think happens though, is that sometimes there's like weird shit remains in the show. And the weirdest thing in this show is by far the marriage between Caitlin played by Nicole Kidman and her husband, Errol, who is played by Martin Donovan, who is Martin Donovan's on the show, a wildly powerful and successful trader, you know, like financial guy. Right. And the extent, I think they must've shot him in two days. Mm Mm-hmm. All their scenes take place with him in a room looking at his like Bloomberg terminal and then essentially giving a monologue about like the way the world really works. Yeah. And they trade information. She's essentially like, I'm going to Spain. He's like, oh, okay. So you're going to Spain. So that means this is happening. You know what I mean? Like there, and then he'll be like, you should know that the reaction to this will be this if this happens, you know? And like, there's a whole idea of like whether or not like, the people who are in charge of the Gulf states need an opposition, need like a, a basically an element like this to be out there to stay in power because otherwise people would start asking questions about economic inequality in, in those areas. Leave that to a, a much more knowledgeable mm-hmm. podcast. But in another show, 
either there's like a reason why these people are having these conversations every second episode or they're cut, I think, right? Like, I just don't know what other show you have these like kind of a Greek chorus about the state of the world that has no dramatic impact on the rest of the series. Well, that's what I meant also when I was like, you can't really hide when you're producing this much content, you know, like you, you, it is, it it runs counter to what we normally think of as, as artistic or or autorish, but like he has the, he has the runway to just do shit, do weird shit, to leave those things in. And, you know, to hear you talk about it, like this is a much more interesting television project that should be considered, you know, when if, if if we get a future and people are like, well, in this era, this is what was going on. This is more interesting in a way than winning time, mm-hmm. other than the existence of winning time. It's just like, no, no, please, let's look backwards. Please, please, please stop looking at the moment. Yeah. Um, this weird collision between reasonable skepticism and outright paranoia. Um it's it's interesting, but the but it to me it comes down to also the the ask is is pretty great to be a Taylorologist the way you are <laughs> requires quite a time commitment because he produces I, I, in volume. I still I still know when when my my hand isn't great with him. Like I I think I got in I got an episode or two into Kingstown season two and I was like I think this was this was maybe one season of of ideas here and the right. the dynamics that he sets up a lot of the times is like. It's so tense and the the sort of stakes are so high that it doesn't really lend itself to a... I mean, it's what's happening with Yellowstone. It's like Casey on Yellowstone has killed like 50 people. You know, like there's just... And there's no world in which this guy is still like, I work for like the, the Bureau of Land Management or wherever right. the fuck he works. Like he's a murderer at, at a certain point. Like, like, and that's the TV problem. If it was a movie. Yeah. Casey would be like, end. the movie is the first two episodes of that show, which are fucking incredible. And then there's a couple of movies within it that are pretty mm-hmm. interesting, but to have it be going into season five B or whatever it is and going possibly what's well, going to end apparently on five B mm-hmm. and then turn into something else. But yeah, the, the, like the, the Taylor thing, it, it requires a commitment. I was not a fan of, of 1923 and I was not a fan of Tulsa King. So it's not like I'm just like blanks, you know, blank check for Taylor for my time. Can I, um, just small digression. Yeah. We're, we're talking about movies, we're talking about the great Martin Donovan. Have you seen that the Hal Hartley collection is on Criterion? Yeah. Do you want to know how you saw it? From you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to do a bit where we're like chatting. Chris told me about this. Uh, Kaya, leave that in. I want people to know that sometimes I make a mistake. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to know, speaking of things that are maybe or maybe not relevant, like for people have heard us talk about, I think in passing, the films of Hal Hartley, who's a great indie filmmaker from the 90s that was incredibly formative to me, I believe to you as well. Um, his movies have been really hard to see or almost entirely unavailable. I have VHS tapes of some of them. Um, they are now available on Criterion. We're not getting a lot of content, as much content in the next few months. Yeah. Could we check a couple out and talk about them? Absolutely. Could we do man. a Hartley pod? Of course we can. Because I'm curious. I, we've talked about this too in other contexts. I, I am interested. I don't know if this will result in interesting podcasting, but I would be really interested to see things that meant so, 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 so much to me at a young age and see whether the magic is still there, whether I can see, or even, I don't know. I mean, we could see if Kaya can borrow her dad's Criterion login, and maybe she would want to watch one to see if <laughs> if, if these movies have any spark. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, they're they're up they're up there now. Um, my favorite was always Simple Men, but unbelievable, yeah, truth, unbelievable truth, trust, amateur. Yeah. We'll circle back to those. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that. 
that actually is like the Martin Donovan part just leads me to like the last point I would make is that he is now kind of doing one of Oh, he's one of the lead actors in all of Hal Hartley's movies. Yes, by I didn't. The way. I didn't actually say that and part you, out loud. You will Sorry. recognize Martin Donovan, very busy character actor, yeah. is is in a lot of streaming TV. What Taylor's doing right now, where he is often minting new stars, and I would say I was familiar with Dio Oliveira's work from a horror movie that I really liked called mm-hmm. uh, In the Tall Grass that's on Netflix. This is like star making for her. She's incredible in this the physical stuff that she has to go through and the physical aspect of her performance mm. is unbelievable. He's also good at finding new roles for people that you're really familiar with. So like Dave Annabelle, who was in Yellowstone briefly and has been on TV. Brothers and sisters Brothers, yeah, was his right. big thing. But like he plays Neil, the surgeon who's married to Joe, and it seems like a nothing part until it's not. And to, to, to see him in this context is really cool. And then... Look, man, I don't know what the paycheck is. I don't know if it's just the material. I've remarked upon how I don't understand how we, there's just this show and Nicole Kidman and Zoe Saldana and Morgan Freeman and Jennifer Ellie and Michael Kelly and Bruce McGill are in the Situation mm-hmm. Room together. But we get what we get. And somehow he is really, he's got Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford to be in a show. He got Sylvester Stallone to be in a show. He got Sam Elliott. And, you know, like he is writing these parts that are very attractive mm-hmm. to, to, to actors, to big, big actors. And it's pretty cool. Like I could not tell you other than the EP credit, like why Nicole Kidman is in this show. It is not a big part. It's not a part that has a lot of like meat on the bones, unless maybe next season they get into like who Caitlin is. She kills it. She's really weird. Like it's, it's a, yeah. it's a weird performance, but I, you know, shout out to her. I guess it diversifies her portfolio, but it's, she's like doing the thing. She's basically Chris Cooper in Born Identity in this show. Do you think they're, she's getting like backroom Jerry Bus deals? Like, does she have points on the Paw Patrol package now? Yes, right. <laughs> that like within the larger Paramount company, there's a certain level Every time of ridiculousness is on MTV, she gets a dollar. Yeah. I, you know, one thing that I do think can't be overstated is that Sheridan was an actor. Yeah. Actors know how to talk to actors and make compelling cases for them and write towards the things that they want to spend their time doing. Yeah. That all matters. Um, I mean, Martin Donovan gets a speech in this last episode Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, that's why Martin Donovan did this. Aside from the fact that Martin Donovan probably likes to work. And he gets to pay his actor. Like, there there is the normal, much like the Linus program, there is a special discretionary fund inside of Paramount that is for Taylor's cast. Uh, I would just say... Zoe Saldana, fan of hers. Yeah, she's really good. Huge fucking fan of hers. She's got that dog in her. Great, great performance on this show. And the last thing I was just say is like, he's he's very crafty about whether or not these things are going to have legs to be a different show next season and more of the same. Mm-hmm. Like, I do not understand the economics or the time management of being Taylor Sheridan uh, and writing every episode of Lioness mm-hmm. and every episode of Yellowstone and all these things and 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 having like his own imprint on this stuff. But he is also pretty savvy when it comes to creating a universe, a storytelling universe around his personal interests, around his creative interests. I, I have, um, before we segue out of the Taylorverse, two small things. One, a strong Jacoby note that I'm hearing in my head, even though he's definitely not listening right now, is... It was pretty wild for me for us to say, like, 
only Taylor Sheridan fans listened to the next 16 minutes of the podcast. And then you sat here and listened? No. And then in the middle of the Taylor Sheridan part, (laughs) talk about the films of Hal Hartley. Thus guaranteeing that any Hal Hartley fans of The Watch will have no idea yeah, that we're really, talking about I mean, this. like, although you're reaching across the aisle. <laughs> and for 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 my absolute yeah. debased lioness heads, they're now like, all right. That I was like when AOC fun. and Matt Gates co-sponsored legislation. <laughs> Is that what that was like for me? Did that happen? It did, it did. It did. The one about how people in Congress shouldn't own stock. Oh, they shouldn't That's own cool. stocks. Yeah. Um, AOC because she believes that it's a conflict of interest, and Matt Gates because he can't probably <laughs> he's not legally allowed to <laughs> own stock to anymore. Account? Yeah. The other piece was you said that Zoe Saldana has dog in her. I agree. I just want to put this out as a plea. Like this has come up a couple times. Like this is I love this. This is something that Chris believes in now that separates not the men from the boys, but from the people with dog and people without dog. Yeah. And when you say it, you're thinking of the J like the 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 image that we've seen of like the x-ray of Darius Slay's ribcage and there's just three dogs standing there. (laughs) And I I think you need, someone needs to give you a template to put the dog x-ray on any picture. Right. The only Photoshop guy we know is Damon Lindelof who's busy. Yeah, but I, it's like, at the watch, we're going to probably more often than not give the dog, that dog in her to to Elizabeth Moss, you know, more than Darius Slay. Right, but that's what I'm saying. So we have, we could easily crowdsource dogs inside of, members of the NFL. Yes. But less so stars of Hal Hartley films. Right. So that's something we need to work Martin on. Martin Donovan has that dog in him. Does he? I think so. Okay. I yeah. think, I mean, the, he, <laughs> over his life, he's had some dog in him. Yeah, okay. But other times not, and that's okay. I thank you for indulging me. I thought that was fascinating. Okay. I hope, I mean, it was probably not as funny as you were hoping. Kaya, start recording again. Okay. We could pick uh, back up. You want to talk about winning time? I do. I got to, I got to talk about this episode. Did you? So you watched this, this episode? I also is, know about basketball. Okay, this is <laughs> this one. This one's getting a little. <laughs> yeah, I, first of all, I had no idea. I have, uh, yeah, yeah. I had no idea Pat Riley became the coach of the Showtime era Lakers. That was a curveball. Yeah, I did not see that. No, coming. this was the. This is probably. I would say this is the best episode of the series. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, like. Here's the thing about this show. We can spend five weeks being like, why does this exist? What a weird expenditure of HBO or of Warner's dwindling fortune. Um, this is just Wikipedia with pantsuits and weird film stock yeah. choices. Okay. But when you stumble into a moment when what is it when 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 history and poetry align, when like this some dramatic shit happened, and then you have Oscar winner Adrian Brody playing a very famous and compelling they, figure. They needed to I think that we what we needed is two things. Over the last two episodes, it has slowed down. Yes and no. It slowed down. That sped up really weirdly. Well, yes. But, yes. but it, it's, I think maybe better than slowed down is it focused. And okay. it focused on the Westhead, Riley, quasi-rivalry, friendship, whatever, mm-hmm. and magic. And like who gets to decide where this team goes mm-hmm. and why they want what they want. And I think that that like really clarified the show. I mean, I I didn't mean to be snippy about it. It's like yes, I, I know what happens in basketball. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought that this episode also uh, was just really well done on a visual level. Did you feel like the show gave short shrift to Pat Riley's innovations in the one three one defense, <laughs> which is actually what won them the titles over the next few years? Yes. Does that was that your main takeaway yes. throughout all of it? Yeah. That like when he I'm was, not trying to be like I'm friggin' Bob Ryan. I'm just like I, I feel like. Chris's main problem was that when Riley was like yelling at Michael Cooper, he didn't say, but fundamentally, you're one of the strongest <laughs> defending guards in the league, and history will win that, will 
fucking prove that. Was that your problem? No, it was not. It's just an entertaining hour of television. I just had such a great time with it. And it's it. I think we said this at times in the first season, that for a show that seemed to want to be very Adam McKay and be very innovative and we're having fun with history and we're playing fast and loose with it and we're saying something about now by saying something about then, the secret sauce that made the season work was when it became a sports movie. Right. And then, whether you know about sports like Chris does or know about sports but doesn't talk about it on mic like me. Right. 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 Big defensive guru over no, here. Tex you, Winter in like, the flesh. Yeah, you, you're one of the only sports fans who doesn't like to talk about <laughs> what you know about sports. Yeah, never. Yeah. Never. I just talk about which players strong, have, silent type. have that dog in them. That's my way to yeah. relate to it. Um, it, This was just a sports movie. Yeah. And Brody's so good in this part. And that scene in the locker room was awesome. Yeah. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And also, um, this is one of Jason Siegel's best performances. I'm glad it's over, though. Yes, it was. There was nowhere else for it to go. Yes, I think that it was calibrated specifically to be like this is not a long term thing. And he was on for obviously a season and a half of television, so it's not like it was a guest spot. No, and he did a good job with the turn of we're rooting for him as an underdog to there is no dog in him. But I did feel like the way that he calibrated the performance or the way that they've designed the performance made it so that it was like there was really even if you didn't know what was going to happen, mm-hmm. it would have been hard to imagine. Jason Siegel's version of Paul Westhead lasting with that team, you know? Absolutely. And again, you know, however much it wants to try to suggest more complicated uh, contexts or narratives about the past, it's still the good guys are the heroes. Mm-hmm. The good guys are the winners. And they're the, they're the ones we care about. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's Magic or whether it's Riles or whatever. Um, but hugely... Hugely, hugely entertaining. Yeah, and it's it is actually from a sports fan's perspective, really kind of cool to see Brody playing these moments of Pat Riley before he's Pat Riley. I, I, I feel to... like you, you know, like uh, there are some of these characterizations are very much like you'll know me later on when I become yes. super famous, yes. and it's like Pat Riley is like, fuck, man, like, am I going to make rent? Am I going to have a job? And the, the 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 because it's a longer term arc, and because Brody's playing him, um, the father stuff. Works for me more than it did yeah. with the Larry Bird episode or the bottle, you know, portion of that episode. I also have never, I haven't done this up to now with the series, but I did go onto the internet computer, to YouTube? yeah, and I watched the actual press conference where Jerry Buss was like, "There are two coaches of this team," and then Jerry West was like, "Pat Riley is the coach of this team," and nobody understands. And I thought that was really interesting too for what the show, what it wants to do, and what it like. It takes tons of liberties. We're mentioning Larry Bird, like. On in on the winning time version of it, Larry Bird drops out of school and then comes back and he sees his father's committed suicide. It, that actually happened before, while he was in high school. Yeah, like little things like that that seem to suit no one but the the writer of the episode. But the press conference is verbatim, including the interruptions from members of the media saying yeah. "with" or "for." Yeah, like they just showed it to them and they just did it. I wish there was more stuff like that. Yeah, in some ways, you know. Watching the video, I recommend it. It's really interesting. And then also in that whatever YouTube clip I saw, there was a follow-up with Pat Riley, who's, who is wearing that weird brown sweater and does not seem like the Riley yeah. that we know. And his demeanor yeah. is, as you were saying, as someone who was not the person that he was about to become. I really I really dug it. Uh, let's wrap up by talking about the end of How To With John Wilson, which is a show we sort of adopted very late 
mm-hmm. uh, as a talking point on this show because I think the show itself demanded that as it got into more meta commentary about like its its own existence. Now, I don't really know a ton about him mm-hmm. and I don't know a ton about like the sort of project that he's embarked on here. But I have found this season to be utterly captivating both in the way that I think other seasons have been where they're just like these observations on on life, but then also as like acts of filmmaking and also commentaries on the idea of making a show of found footage and like how you actually like kind of create that. But this sort of seemed to, this last episode seemed to speak of like larger questions that John Wilson is trying to answer Mm -hmm. for his own life outside of this TV show and perhaps why he is not going to make this show anymore. This show is a miracle. The show is brilliant. This show, three seasons of it, Will, I hope will live on and be watched and be considered as um, important, mm-hmm. as much as silly as that word could be. If it takes one to five houses of the dragons to fund something like this, okay. Yeah. I will take yeah, that. Yeah. I will align with you, Congressman Gates, and I will sign onto this legislation. This is a healthy trade off for me. Um, clip that. Yeah. <laughs> I clip it and like put it on our socials. Yeah, just just like yeah. I align with you, Congressman <laughs> Gates. The end. Sometimes what I give you are weapons. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can use this. I, I trust never. you. I would never. And I feel the same way about our our diverse listenership. I want. I, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. I want our listeners to Photoshop mm-hmm. your face onto Mitch McConnell, right? Freezing up's face, and then also. Photoshop yeah. a dog in him. What, but what kind of dog? Is the dog sleeping? Is the dog distracted by a shiny ball? <laughs> the dog's chasing its tail for 30 yeah. seconds. That's What yeah. is that dog up to? Uh, Not enough. Um, I, I think the show is just totally unique and really beautiful. And, you know, I, I, I've seen people write about the end of the show focusing on the the prominence of the importance of New York in it. Mm-hmm. And this is such a love letter to New York and and it and it absolutely is. And with all the found footage of just the insane things that one sees just by walking on a normal block in New York at any time of year, it captures that better than anything else I've ever seen. Yeah, it's seen. funny you but, say love letter and I know what you mean, but I also think it's like it's just accurate. It's just like when he films like coming yes. out of a bodega in New York and then almost getting hit by an SUV and yeah. three people weirdly standing on the sidewalk. I'm like, that is exactly how it feels. Or when scene. he goes to like Maspeth to like check on his package and there's just a guy in a box being like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's living in New York. I did that but, once. I can't yeah. remember. It wasn't Maspeth, but it was somewhere like at the end of the A. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, we don't have your package. And this was before you could like check. <laughs> was the guy... Like, because it was just like the tag that got left for me was like your package we couldn't deliver right. it so now it's at the facility and I was just like well I guess I'm going to be on the subway for two was and a half package hours was a month shipment of nicotine lozenges no, and it was, was the guy at the office like a promo CD oh, I thought his mouth was full of lozenges he was like <laughs> nope I'm going to be good for 60 to 600 hours is that a better timeline no. what I meant to say was though it is the New York part matters but the curiosity and the empathy towards humanity on this show is staggering, mm-hmm. just as a project. Just the way people reveal themselves in ways big and small, and the way that everyone he meets has a, an idiosyncrasy or a story or a passion that is so important to them that could be... I do think he handles delicately. And we're talking specifically about this finale when like, he ends up... He starts with you know a FedEx package and ends up at a... With, an, with literally an organ 
delivery service yeah. and then in Arizona with um, a cr- cryonics. Cryonics co- um, company, yeah. At a convention one, for people. One of the guys at the cryonics convention is like, shows him his spreadsheets of hundreds, if not thousands of hours of cataloging every action ever taken on every episode of The Bachelor. Yeah. Uh, do I have feelings about that as a use of time? I guess I do. In a I think John Wilson does too. I think he's like, but he does. But th- there's a delicacy to it where I he frames a question and then he walks away. I don't think he's making fun of him because everyone on the show, himself included, is just a roiling collection of foibles. Right? Like it's just everybody is the way they are for a reason. And he films them in their spaces that they've chosen. Yeah, and that they are comfortable in. And sometimes they look like the house of that guy who ends the series almost with a really startling confession about what he's done to himself. It's a staggering portrait of just people. Yeah. It's, and it's funny and it's sad and it's so weird. And I'm really, I am sad that it's over, even though clearly like this is a guy who has his obsessions and his passions and he cannot turn off his camera. So there will be more. He did say thank you for watching my movies, which was also an interesting way. Yeah. I think he thinks of himself as like, these are like the films that I'm making and they're being cataloged or categorized as like a series on HBO that's kind of a comedy and it's like there are funny parts about them but there's also like you just never 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 know where they're going to go and the connections that he's going to make in his head do you think this is useless because you know he's a younger than us guy he's got he could, I'm sure he he has other plans of things that he wants yeah, I think to he's do he's directing the second season of Lioness if you're wondering where he goes next oh, I would fucking love that was he inspired by our comparison of Lioness to the films of Hal Hartley in the 90s if he, if he heard that part, yeah. I think he heard that part. I, I just mean, clearly, what his talent is, and with his team of collaborators, too, I mean, the, what the last episode was about was that it, this isn't just some, like, you know, magical good fortune that he stumbles upon everything, but he just pulls threads. And you could see one of these threads turning into a larger thing. But I wonder if we will look back and be like, boy, we had it, we were so lucky to have yeah. this abundance of a show where we essentially got 18 movies by this guy who now makes one movie every five years. Yeah, you know, I I, I was watching this on Max, um, mm-hmm. and also on Max are, are are a lot of the episodes of of various shows of Anthony Bourdain. So mm-hmm. because of the CNN deal, he's over there. And it made me think a lot about uh, people who become basically, I mean, you rarely see John Wilson in How To With John Wilson, as in some sense you right. see his reflection, but it's inimitably him because mm-hmm. it's he's narrating almost every single frame of of this series and his his particular way of speaking and his particular way of thinking is imprinted on the entire project and obviously like anthony bourdain the public figure who was in those shows and did certain things in those shows where it's like i come here and i like i like drink a weird moonshine and have 40 pounds of barbecue and go to a weird museum and meet the most important person I've ever met. And then, you know, we go on to the next week. It became who he was mm-hmm. in some ways, or it started to take over a little bit, like the public persona started to take over the personal man. And I wonder whether or not that's like in some ways similar for Wilson, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like the version of me refracted through this show is so totally me that the me that I am is not there anymore or something. I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to like, armchair psycho and analyze him it's just i'm fascinated by his decision to stop doing this well but i think that it goes back to what we were saying before you're so he's observing a guy who wants to be immortal Uh but spends his living time cataloging the bachelor gestures on the bachelor and my guess is and we've never spoken to to john wilson though i'd I'd love to 
is that he has he feels more in common with that guy. Yeah, because then it's followed up by its like unremarked upon shot of a hotel pool where one man is playing with his child in an inflatable mm-hmm. raft and is completely locked in and focused on this person, this child. Mm-hmm. And another guy is like holding like a 16-ounce can of beer and wandering around the pool. And he's, Wilson says like, maybe you just get to a point in your life where you want your life to not be, a, be about you anymore. But I think that the unique thing about his life as lived in the public lens for the last three years since the show premiered was that up until the HBO show premiered, and we saw some of this evidence in episodes in the first season, he was doing this anyway. Yeah. He was just filming stuff and cataloging it, and that was the weird thing he did. Like, people watch The Bachelor, or um, I, I, I was about to reach into my grab bag of dozens of other unique weirdos we've met on the show, and there's so many that I can't grab a single one. But that was him. Mm-hmm. But then it it became public that that's what he did. I think the and guy, it became the his guy identity who, uh, became successful. likes to goon cap while he keeps getting interrupted by, by work. work text, <laughs> that's your hero. That guy, what kind of dog does that guy have in him? <laughs> I don't know. What a masterpiece this show was. What an absolute <sighs> treat. And if if any if if there is a small segment of people who listen to us talk about things they don't watch, consider this honestly. We tried to thread the needle here. No, but this is a gift too because this show it's not serialized really. It's not answering any questions. It's not tied to any cultural moment. But if you find yourself with a spare 30 minutes every other night for a couple weeks, it. watch the show. Yeah. I was going to say it's not going anywhere, but you never know in this streaming economy. Sometimes my wife would walk into the room while I would watch the show and she would be like, is there a cat on this show? You didn't tell me that. And I was like, eh, it's I mean, it not was, really like that. It was that. in the window. <laughs> yeah. He has a cat. Yeah. So she didn't watch this? No. No. Did, did she know what goon capping is? No. <laughs> she doesn't. Should we call her live on air and explain? I think she'd be thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, thanks to Kaya McMullen for producing a, a content-heavy episode of The Watch. That, that makes it an outlier. We interrogated a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we get to the bottom of the economic model of television, the worldview of Taylor Sheridan, mm-hmm. our dedication to accuracy in sports history. I think the biggest question coming out of this is, does Kaya think Chris Paul is going to work on the Warriors? Do you feel like they're going to be able to <laughs> move true. past the attempt to bridge the generations? Do they trade Kaminga for veteran help? Like, Or do you still believe in Kaminga and Moody and their ability yeah. to be a, the bridge to the next... Bridge to the future. Uh, yeah. 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 And what happens if the uh, Team USA loses the World Cup? Does that diminish Steve Kerr's standing, not uh, only in the NBA, but in the global world order? The global marketplace of ideas? Yeah. Well, Steve Kerr is an internationalist himself. I don't know if you know this, Chris. I do know that. I know a lot about basketball, so I know that he grew up a little bit in the Middle East. His father, do you know that his father was a diplomat? I do. I do. But you never talk about that. You know that. <laughs> You're such a modest man. Thanks for listening to The Watch. Steve Kerr is Lioness and the NBA combined in one man. What do you think? Res Dogs for Thursday? Okay. What's on your plate this week? What do you want to watch? Chris, like, school starting back up? My plate is just... it. I can fill it. I can go up to the buffet now, and I can just load it up. Okay. I'm I'll excited. Fi- I'll find something for us to check out. Maybe we watch, like, 20 episodes of Top Boy before Thursday. When's this new season you're excited about? Thursday. <laughs> I'm excited because Barry Keegan is in it. Do you know what's rough, though? Is that like we can be like, ha-ha, imagine watching that many episodes of television to prepare for something. And then Mallory is like, hold my go-gurt. Yeah. And she would do that. Yeah. So let's have Mallory watch all of Top Boy for Thursday. I'm sure she's got plenty of free time. Thanks for listening to The Watch. We'll see you guys on Thursday. That's a good one, Brains.